Well, this is uh, Labor Day weekend, and providentially enough, we have a passage set before us that is about work. Now, it is not about our uh, jobs per se, not about what we may go out of the house to do or perhaps stay in the house to do, but it is instead about how we approach our lives as Christians, how we approach them individually and corporately. Last fall, uh, we were looking at the Gospel of John together. And I want to remind you of one verse that was contained in John chapter 5, when Jesus is facing the consternation of the Jewish leaders because he had completed or done a healing on the Sabbath, he responds to them by saying, my father is working until now, and I am working. Well, Paul has just finished, that which we looked at last week, he has just finished this beautiful section describing that work of Jesus. Jesus says, I am working, and Paul has just described for us what that work of Jesus was. Jesus has accomplished his work. His follow-up, though, is not. Therefore, since Jesus has done this work, you Philippians, and by extension, you members of Christ the King, take it easy. Put your feet up. Relax a little bit. Jesus has accomplished it. He's not saying, go ahead and switch your lives into cruise control. Set your Tesla or whatever it is on autopilot and let it go because things are now going to be easy. In contrast, what he says is, therefore, therefore, keep working. Therefore, work it out. Cruise control will not work. You are driving in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and you are driving a manual, and it takes work. Just like the work that we saw that it took to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. You could complain about the work of the wall because of what the builders said. There's rubble all over the place. The work was hard in and of itself, but in addition to rubble being all over the place, there was, in fact, opposition. There were enemies set to undo what had been accomplished. The command is pretty clear, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. But when we hear that, it pretty quickly brings up some important questions, especially for us as Protestants. Because when we hear this, we know that we've been taught that we're saved by grace through faith, that justification is by faith alone and not by our works. And so we kind of get to this phrase that Paul is writing here. We know about Paul. We know what he thinks about works. And we kind of get to it and we stumble a little bit because it says work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. And then besides that difficulty, besides the difficulty of trying to understand what that can mean in the entire Pauline corpus, 
then there's the difficulty of the verse that follows immediately after it, verse 13. Because verse 13 seems to then double back on itself and change the idea of the one who is actually at work here. Point being this, we need to look at this passage a little bit carefully. We need to look at it closely and say, all right, exactly what is being commanded of us here and what's not being commanded and how do we go about it. So as we look at this passage today, what I want to do is begin outside of this passage itself with what I want to call, and if you like points, this will be the first point, with what I want to call his work. Okay, we want to begin with this idea of his work, which is to say God's work, the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As I already noted, if you look at your Bibles, if you look at the passage that's printed there, we begin this passage with a therefore. It's a therefore passage, and that means that what is now being said, in this case, what is being given to us, a command in particular, an imperative, is founded upon something else, namely, it is founded upon that which has preceded it. So Paul treats it like this. We might ask a question, on what do we base this working out of our own sal salvation? What's the therefore? What, what has come before this? And the answer from Paul is you work on the foundation of his work. You work on the foundation of what he has done. Paul has just finished, as I've said, with this section expounding upon the work of Jesus Christ the work in his humiliation, and the work in his exaltation. And though I don't want to go back to it in detail right now, in the beginning of chapter 2, I reminded us that Paul there focuses upon the Trinity in verse 1 and describes the work that each member of the Trinity has done on our behalf. But what I would like to go back to, and I think this makes it very clear, if you've got your Bibles, just flick back one page because I want to look together at chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read it for us. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This passage, I think, helps to explain what we're talking about when we want to start on the foundation of his work. He who began it will bring it to completion the work that we are then being called to do in this particular passage is a work that was not started by us. Someone else started this. And it is a work that will not be finally and fully completed by us. So we might say it like this, that there is a work before our work and a work that will complete the work that we're doing. I'm sorry, I know that's using work a lot, but the idea is there. There's something that has come before it, there's something that has come after what we're being called to do, and that's an important thing in order to frame the command that we've got before us here from Paul, work out your salvation. Now we need to say a bit more then about this. We need to unpack this idea of salvation and try and get our hands around what Paul means here when he says 
work out your salvation. Sometimes when we use the word salvation, and this is appropriate, but sometimes when we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved. And, and many times, just in our casual conversation, the way we talk to one another, we talk about that as an event that took place in the past. So we may refer to uh, some kind of a retreat that we went on, and at the end of that retreat, we prayed to the Lord, and we might say, we were saved, or that's how God saved me. He used this person, that person in my life, a Sunday school teacher in my life, uh, a parent in my life, and I was saved. That is to say, I, I crossed over from death to life, to go back to uh, the words of John, at a particular point in time in the past. That was when I believed, that was when I confessed, it was when I repented. And on that day or in that time frame, I was saved. But for Paul, when he uses the word salvation, it often, in fact, I, it might, you might even say most of the time, not exclusively, but it often at least, does not in fact refer to a singular event that took place when we believed. It is in fact much more comprehensive than that as a term. For Paul, when he uses the word salvation, it may have started in the past, but when Paul talks about salvation, he's never, well, I, I don't want to say never, he's usually not looking back. He's looking forward. For Paul, salvation is in the future. It is particularly for Paul associated with what he refers to as the day of Christ Jesus. That day that is coming, in fact, later in this passage that we'll look at next week, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ Jesus I may be proud. He's looking forward to a day which is to come. And in that day, at the return of Christ, at the end of all things, or the beginning of all things, depending on how you look at that particular day, that's when salvation takes place, or at least that's when salvation is completed. Now you'll have to allow me here just for a moment to paint a picture of that without referencing all of the places. Let me just say for Paul what that includes. When Paul looks forward to a day of salvation, he looks forward to a public acquittal, to the public and declarative statement that this one is forgiven of all their sins, they are counted as righteous, and they are brought into. They are considered not guilty and righteous, and therefore a member of my kingdom. In that day, adoption, which we think of as already having taken place, and it has, but it's not finished. In that day, our adoption is finalized. The final papers are signed, to use a recent illustration in our own church. In that day, our sanctification is completed. In that day, there's an end to this constant, daily, hourly struggle with sin that we've got going on. In that day, the day of Christ Jesus, we receive our resurrected bodies. In that 
day, there is our glorification. For Paul, salvation takes place then. It has started now, it takes place then. We have entered into salvation, but it is not complete for Paul. It is, in fact, future for Paul. Now, this has already been used this way in this letter, and I've tried to point it out along the way as we came to two sections. Paul talks about salvation as future, both for himself and for the Philippians. He has already done that. So, for example, regarding himself, in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. What Paul is saying is this experience, this present trial, and he's not talking about getting out of prison at this point. What he's saying is that through these trials that I am experiencing, through my life being pressed into the image of Jesus Christ, this is going to result in my salvation, my being made like Jesus. It is a future event for him. And when he then addresses the Philippians, he says to them essentially the same thing about their own salvation. He says a little bit further down in verse 28. This is a clear sign, sorry, this is talking, the section here is talking about the opponents and about not being afraid before the opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, they're not currently, the opponents that is, the opponents are not currently being destroyed. That's something in the future. And your courage in the face of their opposition makes them realize, uh-oh, this is coming up. This is waiting for us. So Paul looks forward when he talks about salvation, and that helps us to clarify his work and our work. There is work that has been started. God started it. The Spirit of God started it. Jesus accomplished it according to the will of the Father. There is work that has been started and there is work that needs to be done. There's both. Work that needs to be done. To be more precise, the work which has been started, the definitive work that is, in fact, his work, what Paul uses as his favorite example of trying to understand this and trying to describe what that work is, his favorite example is Abraham. Abraham is the one that he wants to use when he wants to clarify what's been done. Look at the verses printed on the front of your bulletin. I should have told you to keep out your bulletins because I'm going to need to refer to all of the verses on the front. The one that is at the top from Romans, Paul is discussing justification, and he's discussing Abraham, and he says this, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. For Paul, the entrance into salvation, the on-ramp that gets you into salvation is in fact justification by faith. That is the work that God has done. That's why I had us read those sections from the catechism before. It is an act. It is the work which God has done. It is not because of works. And that's his point. Abraham wasn't justified by his works. 
Abraham was justified, in fact, by his faith. It's not by works nor the wages of the one who works. We can look at Paul throughout. Abraham was not justified by his works. Neither was David, neither was Paul, and neither were you. None of us were justified by our works. It is the gift of God, or if you want to say it this way, it is as a result of God's work. There is work that was done for your justification. It just wasn't yours. It was God's work that accomplished our justification. Our justification, our entrance into salvation is his work. It is the free gift of God. So we have to begin our understanding then of this passage with his work. And that allows us then to transfer into, okay, if there's work to be done and Paul is commanding us to do it, that moves us to our work, from his work to our work. And that command then clarifies a bit. In the light of the work that God has done, in the light of the work that God will do, Paul looks us in the eye and says, now, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the way that I want you to approach your salvation and your salvation individually and the implications of it corporately as well. Let's think of it this way. God created the world. And when God created the world, God worked to create the world. Okay, that would be the, if, if God rests on the seventh day, the idea is that God's work of creation took place on the other six days. And when God had created the world, he created man and commanded us saying, I, in effect, I have created this. Now I have created you, that is my work, and now I want you to work in my field. I want you to work in the work that I've done, in the context of the work that I've done, in the environment of the work that I've done, in the physical place of the work that I've done. I've created you to work these fields, to work the ground from which you came. The same pattern then, of creation applies to redemption as well. And that's the idea that's embedded in a variety of these passages. I had us read for the promise of forgiveness, the, the passage from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not because of works, so that no man can boast, but of course it continues, verse on the front of your bulletin, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, so, so God has, in the midst of all the other work that he's done, fashioned us, his workmanship, to be created by Christ Jesus unto this work that we are supposed to do, which Paul here in Ephesians calls the good works, which we are given to do. So this call to work that we have is, in fact, a noble call. It cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be taken casually or passively. There's, there's no good way to passively do the work that we've been entrusted to do. Instead, Paul calls us to do the work with 
fear and with trembling. Now that gets a little bit ner- that gets us a little bit nervous because we feel like, what do you mean fear and trembling? Like I might not make salvation? Like 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 something's on the line here? Well, maybe. Maybe. At least Paul is saying it this way. Work out your own salvation with diligence, with seriousness, with effort. Do not be presumptuous about it. And if, in fact, the implication here, if, in fact, you find yourself going, I don't want to work. I don't want to do any of this hard work of salvation, this hard work of keeping relationships up in the church, this hard work of advancing the gospel of Christ. I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum all day. If you find yourself saying that with reference to your spiritual life, I think Paul would say to us, you got to ask some questions. You, you, you have to ask some hard questions about yourself if you find yourself in that setting. Now, I've stated, work is noble, right? But we also have to recognize that work, which originally was given to us in a beautiful, perfect world, work, of course, now exists in a fallen world. And that's true in gardening. It's true in the particular jobs, professions, responsibilities that you have. And it is true in your spiritual life and in our corporate life as a church. In gardening, work is opposed. It is opposed not only by the metaphor of weeds and thorns and thistles, it's actually opposed by weeds and thorns and thistles and fungi and little bugs that eat your plants by things that die, by decay, by wind that knocks things over, by rain that floods things out and rots it. There are opponents at work in the work of gardening. And, and, Philippians, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that in pursuit of the work of our spiritual lives, we are opposed. Now, Paul doesn't give a name to them in Philippians except the opponents. He calls them the opponents. We're opposed by opponents. But we're also opposed by that which takes place in ourselves as well, by dissension in the church, by anxiety, by conflict that takes place. We're opposed by selfishness. So even if we lived in an ideal world, We would have a calling to work. But in this fallen world, Paul is saying to the Philippians and by extension to us and to the church throughout the ages, in this fallen world, you cannot expect your personal sanctification, that is to say your personal growth in Christ. You can't expect the communal life of this church, the teaching of the children of the church. You can't expect the renovations of phase two. You cannot expect the advance of the gospel. You cannot expect your own salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. You cannot expect your own salvation to take place. 
without work. Without your work. And without your own hard work. You cannot expect it. Therefore, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and with trembling. And of course, Paul says here, just to round out some of the things that he's saying, he's saying, and let's be clear about this, we're not talking about just working well when somebody is watching. In this case, Paul says, I'm not talking about just working it out and obeying when I'm there, when I'm with you, but even more so in my absence. A good worker works well with fear and trembling before the Lord. And of course, Paul can extend this. He, he can extend it to the actual jobs that we have, the vocations that we do. Remember that in Ephesians and Colossians, don't do your work as I pleases, as, as, as man pleases, as you know, just waiting till the boss is looking and then doing something really good and trying to show up and look like you're the best at doing whatever the job may be. I think Paul's example, and I've got it printed for us here on the front of the bulletin, is extraordinary and it is for all of us. Now, none of us are Pauls, okay, right? None of us are apostles. I'm not an apostle. You're not called to be an apostle either. But listen to the example. Verse, uh, pardon me, 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. How do you know if grace is operative in you? Well, one of the ways that you know that grace is operative in you is when you work. Because that's what Paul says. This is the grace that was given to me. God gave me this grace that I might serve, Paul says this, as an apostle in the church, and therefore I worked harder than any of them. You know grace is operative. You know that it's true grace when you don't kick back and say grace is great. But when you say grace is great, what can I do? What can I do to be a part of this? What can I do to be a part of the extension of grace in the world around me and the church of which I am a part? And so the question that I have to ask you as your pastor is simply this, how hard are you working? How hard are you working? Now, Fair enough, you can apply this to school life, to jobs, to responsibilities. You can even apply it to your hobbies, how hard are you working, but, and that's all good, and it could be, and, it, and Paul does it in different places in that way. But in this particular section, Paul's not asking a general question about how you're doing with all of life. Paul's being very specific. He's talking about working out your salvation within the community of which God has made you a member. That's what he's talking about here. How hard are you working on your spiritual life, grounded in the community of the church, seeking the advance of the gospel? How hard? How hard do you work at your spiritual life? How hard do you work at loving the people in this church and seeking to advance the gospel of Christ. 
if the answer is, well, uh, kind of so-so, um, then be warned. Then be warned. Tremble and fear. And believe me, I don't like saying this personally. But, but when we're commanded to do it that way, when we're commanded to work it out with fear and with trembling, if you find yourself going, I don't really work on my spiritual life. I don't really work on loving other people in the church. That's for other people to do. If you respond that way, you, you have to answer to God. You have to answer to Paul. You have to answer to the scriptures for why, in fact, that is the case. Now, that's a heavy command. That's a heavy warning. And Paul seems to realize that this is a heavy warning that could be misunderstood. He seems to understand that in our sinful weakness, we might hear something like this and go, man, I've tried to work for years on this, and I don't see a lot of result in my life. And we might just give up in despair because, in fact, the work is so hard. And that's why he comes back to what we see in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We've seen his work, our work, and Paul closes it with his working. Paul has assured all of us that God has started and God will complete a good work in us. Paul has called us, therefore, to work hard now. And now he says, just to be clear, just to give encouragement, God is now at work in you, enabling the very work that I've just commanded you to do. God is at work. When you cry out, Lord, give me strength. I'm sorry, I, I, I know I've said this before recently. You're my mother saying that all the time. Lord, give me strength. When you cry out, Lord, give me strength, God does not respond by saying, hey, listen, buddy, listen, I got you started. And I'm going to finish it. Okay, I've told you, I got the beginning and I got the end. Can't you do anything here in the middle? Can't you at least take care of this middle portion of that? He doesn't say to us, really? You can't do anything on your own? I can't leave you for five minutes and you can't do anything on your own? Do I have to do everything? No, when we cry out, when we cry out, Lord, help, Lord, give strength, Lord, establish the work of our hands. His response is, I'm with you. You've got it. You've got exactly what you are asking for. I am with you to give you strength. And of course, that's, I didn't read the end of the verses, neither of Ephesians 2.10 nor of 1 Corinthians 15.10. The good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then 1 Corinthians 15.10, when Paul has said, I worked harder than anybody else, he immediately qualifies, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Of course you don't have strength for it. Of course you don't have strength for the middle in and of yourselves. It doesn't change the command. It changes the dependency. Jerry Bridges puts it like this. God's work does not make our effort unnecessary Rather, it makes it effective. 
God's work doesn't make our work unnecessary. Rather, it makes it effective. And so what is being said here by our Lord is I'm not only going to give you a helping hand, I'm not only going to help with the work itself, but I'm going to work inside of you. I'm going to work with your will. I'm going to work with your heart and with your mind, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to work in you, in your will, in your heart, in your hand, in your strength, for my good pleasure, which is an odd statement. It is odd. We might say, wait a minute, you're working for your good pleasure. But for the child of God, when we hear that something is for God's good pleasure, there is nothing sweeter than that. There is nothing better than God's good pleasure. If one of us said it, I want you to work for my good pleasure, you might kind of question that. But when God says it, he says it in a way that allows our pleasure to become his pleasure. And so it is completely pleasurable. And I'm sorry, I have to quote the old line from the old movie because it fits right here. You know the old line from Chariots of Fire, I feel his pleasure when I run. I feel his pleasure when I run. Well, the idea here is the same. I feel his pleasure when I work out my salvation with fear and with trembling. I feel his pleasure when I work at my spiritual life, when I seek to serve my fellow people and love my fellow brothers and sisters in the church, I feel his pleasure. I feel his pleasure when I work with my brothers and sisters for the advance of the gospel. That's when I feel his pleasure. And that is a sweet thing. Now, my friends, I think, just, it, it, just to wrap this thing up, I think it is fine for us to look at a passage like this and feel some tension. To kind of look at those two verses, to kind of look at these two halves of things, a command that we have to work it out, and a statement right after that, that it's God who is at work, and to kind of you know, to scratch our, our, our head a little bit, our cheek a little bit, and go, not sure how that all fits together. It's fine for us to have a little bit of tension. Just so you know, God doesn't have any tension about this. God understands exactly what is taking place in your heart and exactly what is taking place in your life. It's okay, though, if for us, that's not 100% clear. How do I know when God's working or when I'm working or how do I cooperate with that? That is okay. I think overall, though, as a message, the call to us is clear. In light of his work and his working, then work it out. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would enable us to do that which is commanded. That's the old prayer of your church. That's Augustine's old prayer. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And that's our prayer today as well, that we would be your servants to do your will. But Lord, you know how much we need your strength to do exactly that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.